The 8th Bioceuticals Research Symposium is going digital and will take place over four weekends from the 6th to the 28th of June 2020. For more information and to register your place, go to bioceuticals.com.au and click on the Education tab. Hi everyone, I'm Dr. Mark Donoghue and welcome to FX Medicine. Today I'm standing in for Andrew Whitfield-Cook and we're talking about the coronavirus in kids with a very good friend from a couple of years back at the Bioceuticals Conference, Dr. Elisa Songs. Welcome Elisa, how are you going? I am doing great, Mark, and I'm really honoured to be here and share whatever information I can with all of you in Australia because this COVID-19 is really affecting all of us worldwide. I should actually put it in perspective. We're talking here on April the 8th in 2020. It's a big time in America and, and it's a big time in Australia for the expansion of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. It's making a living in a lot of people and causing a lot of havoc. But I do have to say, although the world's in lockdown, it does seem that as a paediatrician, you have the luxury of having the only patients in the world who are relatively immune, or I shouldn't say the word immune, but not being affected as severely by the virus. Is that what you're finding or are kids getting sick with this already? You know, some kids are getting sick with it, but worldwide we are seeing that uh, the vast majority of children who are diagnosed or presumptively diagnosed with COVID-19. Um, so just in terms of the terminology, SARS-CoV-2 is the name of the virus that is causing the respiratory illness COVID-19. Um, so they're sometimes used interchangeably, but COVID-19 yes. is the clinical picture of what's going on. And so even now, you know, worldwide, I just looked today at the Johns Hopkins database and we have over a little over 1.2 million people who have been infected worldwide. Um, and even within that number, we're finding that the vast, vast majority of children uh, seem to do well with their illness, have mild to moderate symptoms, don't require serious um, interventions, hospitalizations, uh, intubations. And even in that number, uh, we are finding that, you know, even worldwide, there's been fewer than five reported deaths in children under 19. So it is true. Somehow, children seem to be relatively spared. Now, the other the other thing too is though we don't know, given the paucity of testing here in the states and really worldwide, I don't know how Australia has been doing in terms of rolling out testing on time. Um, but uh, but here in the states, we are woefully uh, slow <laughs> to getting our testing rolled out. And um, you know, in other countries like in Iceland, they just realize as a rolling out the testing that maybe up to 50% of the population is asymptomatic um, and right. has had COVID-19 or has COVID-19. And I do suspect that many, many children are asymptomatic carriers. And, you know, this is where the, the lockdown, the shelter at home, you know, the, the quarantine is so important to help slow down the spread to those vulnerable populations. Yeah, it does seem that way. It's almost... I mean, the, the degree to which children are capable of managing these kind of infections. As a paediatrician, you've obviously seen this. You see kids with terrible infections, but mm -hmm. also their ability, the kind of immune plasticity and flexibility of them, 
what is why are they doing so well why do children handle things so much better and why do we lose that capacity as we age what goes wrong well you know that that's been actually really puzzling to researchers and i think if we could figure out why children seem to be relatively spared we would understand a lot more how can we help prevent serious complications in our adult patients because we do know that um, even still, I mean, the numbers, when you look, and I've stopped looking at the Johns Hopkins map because every day, I mean, as you said, this is April 8th, as we're speaking, whenever this airs, that number that we see on the map is going to be significantly higher as more and more people get affected. But, um, you know, over 80% of patients do recover and do seem to have mild to moderate symptoms. So, I, you know, I want to really acknowledge that first and foremost. But, you know, children in general, I mean, they, they don't have all the garbage that we've built up over time. Uh, in Italy, where the death rates have been just so tragically high, they still have found that 99% of the, the people who have died in Italy had one, two, or three or more chronic health conditions. So I think children just haven't had that time to build up, you know, our, our chronically poor lifestyle, you know, that leads to all of those chronic illnesses. But the other conjecture too, um, I, I actually had to laugh a bit because I read this one article that was uh, conjecturing that children may have, have relatively uh, lighter symptoms because they eat healthier. And I'm like, well, I don't know what they're eating healthier, but Certainly not in the States, right? You know, with the standard American diet and the white diet, right? With mac and cheese and pizza and quesadillas, which are pretty much all the same food, you know, and all the sugar. So I don't, I really don't think it's diet. Um, I think, you know, there is some thought that children have higher levels of melatonin. And we do know that melatonin does seem to be actually protective uh, in terms of COVID-19 infections. Uh, the other thing too is that um, ACE2, the, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, it enters cells through ACE2 receptors. And ACE2 receptors are primarily located in the lung, uh, intestinal lining, and the liver. And another thought is that because children, their, their lungs are less mature, they have fewer ACE2 receptors for the SARS-CoV-2 right. virus to enter. So that could be a possibility too. I mean, this is all theory, but I, I do think, you know, what, I, what I'm finding is that uh, children seem to be presenting more with gut symptoms, with the diarrhea and the tummy aches and the nausea. Uh, and, and, you know, they do have quite a few ACE2 receptors in their, in their gut lining. So um, it may be something to do with that. I've been listening to some of the clinicians in New York saying that the worst case outcomes are being predicted somewhat by um, adults who get diarrhea as the earliest sign. They, they don't in fact feel that they have a cough or a cold. And yeah. it seems like that binding to the ACE2 receptors in the duodenum might be a real thing that the virus gets in, gets onto an unhealthy gut, mm -hmm. whether through drug therapy, diet, whatever you like to say, and has a free period of time to breathe up a little bit without the, uh, without the obvious symptoms. And we've had this problem all the time. You, yeah. know, you say asymptomatic people are passing it on. It, de it does seem that there is way more of this gastrointestinal, the diarrhea-like illnesses, feeling unwell, but not a classic cold, and then the respiratory yep. symptoms coming on secondary. So it, it is interesting. ACE2, we all think of it, oh, pneumonia is the only thing. But in fact, the gut is a good breeding ground mm. for a virus like a coronavirus. And I take it is, and you know, and that's interesting kids. too. Sorry, I take issue with the kids, kids and, and teenagers who you see all the time. 
as you know, I've seen the work on your website to try and get them to eat well. The work that has to be done, junk, <laughs> junk food yeah. is is the living game, especially now people are locked down at home. I, I would guess their diet hasn't greatly improved either in that time. So if we could get kids to eat well, that may be an additional benefit. But it, it does seem that the uh, dietary management of this, getting the gut right, is going to become an important part. Diet, any, anything that we can do to get a healthy gut may just be a barrier as well. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one thing that I'm really, really talking to parents about and um, and children about during this time when we're really trying to support our immune systems, you know, it is such a stressful time for everybody. Life has been turned upside down for right. everyone. And, you know, the ultimate, not just physical toll, but the emotional, psychological toll and the economic toll that, that many of us will face um, long after COVID-19, you know, is no longer a pandemic, um, you know, many of us are reaching towards our comfort foods and a lot of that includes sugar <laughs> and yes. so sugar you know and i'm telling people do not you know stock up on sugar in your grocery carts don't reach for that pint of ice cream when you're stressed out find other ways to manage your stress because that's the worst thing we can do when we're trying to support our immune systems you know the, the this is an old i believe it's from the 70s or the 80s but this one research uh, paper found that uh, you know not just refined sugar but even fructose uh, could within 20 minutes suppress the ability of our macrophages to do their job right and kind of mop right. up all of the viruses and bacteria by 50% and the effect lasted for at least five hours. So, you know, as we're really trying to make better choices or educate our, our families how to make those good cho choices for our immune systems, sugar is one of the first things that we have to really think about cutting back on. Yeah, I, I mean, I have another concern. You lock teenagers and kids in a house with their parents and don't let them leave home. Surely <laughs> there is a psychological disaster brewing there. I mean, yeah. I think of me, if I was a 13, 12, 13 year old and I was locked up with my parents and maybe my younger kids and couldn't get out, there's <laughs> going, there has to be an impact on mm -hmm. people not going crazy. Do you, do you have kind of advice on that side of how you get through this? How do you stay together in a home not leave and yet not go insane. But I have this feeling that at the end of the lockdown, we'll be going around home seeing that there are dead people that were killed by other relatives in the home <laughs> rather than the virus. Yeah. Well, and you know, it, the, 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 the problem is very real. We just, you know, there was just one report came, that came out and I'm sure we're gonna see larger numbers of this of people with mental health problems, with, with depression yeah. and anxiety or schizophrenia or you name it, who are essentially locked at home without social connection with their friends or family. Uh, and this one man took his own life. And so I think that, you know, we really do have to think about, you know, what this what this lockdown means. Now, in California, we were the first state to have a, a, a statewide shelter at home order. And it's not a lockdown per se. I mean, we are allowed to leave our homes, you know, for essential items. We're not, you know, we're not stuck at home. I know there are certain countries where that is the case, but um, but at least for us, where we, we 
do we can be outdoors and you know go for walks and bike rides you know i definitely think that getting outdoors in the sunshine in nature is really really important for everyone's mental and physical health uh, people are not moving their bodies and i really worry yeah. about that you know one of my my reception and, and she she told me it's fine for me to share this but we just had a good laugh but then a kind of a horrified laugh because um her fiance who is now working from home she came home one day and looked at his, you know, his smart watch, whatever yes. step counter. He had only taken 93 steps <laughs> the entire day. And I'm like, how do you do that? I mean, did you not go to the bathroom or go to the <laughs> But I, I am fearful that many people are doing that. They're staying inside at home you know on their butts not moving and that is we are not going to come out a healthier society for that so i do think that this is our opportunity to really get back to the basics of you know healthy lifestyle diet good habits um but in terms of family units um you know and really surviving <laughs> you know being yeah. out without you know driving each other crazy you know what i i think that really you know, we all know about adverse childhood events and the lifelong implications for chronic health disease. And I think for many of our kids, this will will be an ace for them. Um, and so we need to do our best to try to try to mitigate that, um, help really build up that that emotional and cellular resilience for their lifetime. And one of the keys for all of us right now is we need to maintain our routines. The structure of our routines is different, but having those routines, especially for our teenagers, this is not yeah. a for all, it's not summer vacation, it's not weekends. You need to, we all need to get up, you know, shower, wash our faces, change our clothes, right? It is not time to stay in our pajamas all day. <laughs> I tell all teenagers, <laughs> they cannot lounge around in their pajamas all day in the same set of pajamas for the whole week. I mean, that's not acceptable. And, you know, my kids, the, my kids are 10 and eight. And one of the first things we did when, when we were told that we would be doing distance learning, you know, online learning with school, and it was just announced today that this would extend for the rest of the school year. Our kids are not returning to school uh, for the rest of this academic year. So we, um, I don't know if you can see, but we literally came up with this spreadsheet. Thankfully, this is my <laughs> But, you know, spreadsheet from eight o'clock in the morning to eight o'clock at night and half hour increments. And we wrote down when we're going to have breakfast, when it's time to do schoolwork, when it's time to go outside, when it's time to exercise. And we don't have to follow it to the T, but predictable routines make everyone feel safer. Um, the other thing, too, is, you know, I, we really want to try to move away from the terminology of social distancing. You know, that's mm. the term that's really come up with, you know, um, flatten the curve. We want to socially distance so that we prevent the spread through respiratory droplets. But social distancing should not equal social isolation. And we want to really yes. think about this in terms of physical distancing. We are physically distancing ourselves from others to keep ourselves and others safe and healthy. But socially, I mean, look at how we're communicating. We're on opposite sides of the world, right? And so, yeah. you know, can maintain that social communication, which is really key. So for our younger kids, like like my children who don't have their own Zoom accounts or don't have their own devices, we are scheduling Zoom playdates or FaceTime playdates, you know, and family, you know, FaceTime uh, and Skype meetings so that grandma and grandpa who we're staying away from, you know, can, can maintain contact. So that's especially important. And during this time, our kids are, they are going to get more screen time than we would like. It's just, yeah. you know, 
going to happen, but we need to be mindful of that and, and be aware um, of how they're using their screen time and help facilitate that. Right. The conspiracy theory is that either the Zoom Corporation or Netflix engineered this whole crisis so that we oh. stay at home, consume yeah. more video, use more bandwidth. And um, it's tempting to think sometimes that's the case. In Australia, we have more of a, a lockdown than I think anywhere, but maybe New York is uh, getting mm. to that that level. But in Australia, the, the degree to which you could get out, people are borrowing other people's dogs so that they have the oh. excuse to get out of the house to walk, yes, the, dog. To walk the dog. Yeah. And, and I know full well we're just coming out of summer heading towards winter down here. Yeah. The value of good sunlight exposure, exercise, vitamin D, especially for upper respiratory infection when you're trying to keep that under control, if you lock everybody inside, and you give them no way of moving the muscles, then the body falls into an unhealthy state. Yes. And the dropping vitamin D and that kind of, it, we're almost emulating um, a little bit of uh, inability to do something. And the body goes into a state which is not healthy. Trying to maintain health in this stage, maybe getting a new hobby like cooking, especially mm -hmm. for old men like me who are at risk. We should be cooking <laughs> for ourselves for a change and uh, doing something on our own diet rather than relying on partners. But new skills, getting outdoors. What, what If you had a kind of checklist of things just to say during this time, what am I going to be advising not just my, your paediatric patients but the parents and the household to do, what would be your favoured list of things? I know food's going to be on there and I know it's going to be very high and I know that there's a rainbow coming, but what would be your checklist? Just to run down. You know, I love that you said finding something new to do. I think that, you know, we need to really use this time to keep our brains and our minds as active and healthy as possible, um, not just right. our bodies. And so um, really figuring out this, this is, you know, in all of this, we have to see, you know, through the tragedy, there are going to be some golden opportunities that we will never have in our life again. We will never have this time to spend this much <laughs> good time with our family, our immediate family. It's just not going to happen in this way right. again. So, you know, really, um, you know, thinking about how do we want to use this time? And so coming up with a new hobby, a new skill, um, cooking for sure is a great one. My kids actually just learned how to make, you know, scrambled eggs and a breakfast sandwich so that they can make it for us in, in bed, you know, on Saturday sure. morning. Um, but, you know, it can be really fun things too. My daughter is learning how to make all sorts of things with origami now uh, and just folding all these amazing creatures. Um, I know I want to learn how to knit. So if there's ever been anything on your bucket list, you know, that this is the time to pull out, find a YouTube tutorial and do that. And the yeah. other thing I think that, you know, really is going to be very, very important for all of us during this time is to figure out how we can practice gratitude every day. And we know the science behind gratitude, that gratitude is not just something for you to feel good. It really does increase our heart rate variability. Uh, it's going to increase our sense of connectedness with our family and our friends and our communities and even the world. And so, you know, that's something that, you know, I just, I, I teach kids and parents and adults it's probably more important for parents and for teenagers because the younger kids right now, they're not so stressed. We do have the ability still to shield them from a lot of what's going on in the world, but it's really our teenagers with free access to their devices and scrolling down their, their media feed and seeing all the horrible news and not able to filter it out and don't 
quite have the maturity yet to really um, sort out the news for themselves. They're the ones coming in with panic and stress and, and anxiety yes. for all of this. Um, and so, you know, when we can teach them to, to do things like, you know, heart math and diaphragmatic breathing, practice gratitude in a specific way. I mean, there's a loving kindness gratitude that I love to teach kids and adults. And it's just four sentences that they repeat, you know, first first giving that loving kindness to themselves and then thinking about their friends and family and extending that same loving kindness and then thinking about their community, the healthcare workers on the front lines, thinking about you know, their country and the world and really extending that out. And it just, the sense of calm that you get is incredible. And the four sentences that all they have to repeat is, may you feel safe, may you feel healthy, may you feel happy, may you live with ease. And that's it. I mean, that's four sentences, but really that, that those four sentences they actually gave to college students to do a loving kindness meditation, you know, every day for six weeks. And they had to sustained improvements in the heart rate variability. They had sustained improvements in feelings of connectedness with others, which is so important right now where we, you know, can so easily feel isolated. So this is the time to really, you know, figure out, you know, what's going to bring us joy? What do we want our life to look like after COVID-19? Because there will be an after. And so we want to make sure that we, you know, not just survive through COVID-19, but that we thrive and that we can live with purpose, you know, during this time and beyond. Yeah, it's a in in a way, it's a kind of opportunity. It doesn't feel like it when the uh, when the panic button is hit. Yeah, and I do understand the seriousness and the degree to which our officials have to be very almost super pessimistic to you know get people to do what's good for them. Mm-hmm. But we do have a next generation who are not those that are suffering from this, who are watching their parents and officials and watching the panic. And I, I fear that they're modeling off us that as a youngster, they watch how we handle stress. And that modeling has the risk of depressing immunology at a very literal sense. Joy, yeah. happiness, gratitude tend to enhance immune responses that are protective. Whereas mm-hmm. going into your shell, hunkering down, feeling under stress is definitely not a great way to get a good balanced response to a virus. So I have two concerns there. One of them is, what's the psychology of going into fear as your response to something that is a threat around, rather than going into joy, gratitude, and finding new hobbies, new life? And at the end of it, are we just setting the stage for more of these kind of episodes in the future? Because viruses are going to make their move on us. Mm -hmm. They are going to come out of bats somewhere. There's one breeding up for us in another decade. This isn't the last of the ones we're going to have to face. I wonder if we're just modeling the wrong things there. Well, I mean, you bring up so many, so many key points because, you know, as, a, as I mentioned, I mean, I do think this will be a, a serious adverse childhood event for many of our kids. And they absolutely, especially for our younger kids, when we're going through a traumatic experience like this, a world disaster, whatever it may be, our kids are watching how we're acting and what we're saying to inform them how they should be responding to trauma and to traumatic events. And that's informing them how they should be, you know, responding to any stressful event in the future. So really, you know, when we are um, 
panicking, afraid, nervous, frustrated, angry, whatever the range of emotions that we're feeling, we do want to acknowledge that we're feeling those emotions, but if they're really complex and complicated, and, and if we're literally freaking out, I mean, we just need to step away, process those feelings, and come back and talk with our children about what yeah. we're feeling what they're experiencing very very important the other thing too is you know just in terms of uh, taking media breaks it is really crucial that we do not have the tv or the radio on as background noise we don't have um, our, our social media feed constantly up um, because children will be, there's a term called vicarious re-traumatization, where if they keep hearing, and we are doing this to ourselves too, we are, we are not vicariously re-traumatizing ourselves, we're doing it yeah. on purpose, but children, as they see these and hear these things on, a, on the news over and over again, but don't quite understand what to make of it, how to interpret it, they are vicariously being re-traumatized. And so we really need to be careful about that. This is what we saw with the 9-11 attacks that was happening when people just had their, their TV on all the time. Uh, and so, and I just want to point out, there's a, a wonderful book by Don Hubner for children. And she didn't write this book for obviously for COVID-19 because it didn't exist when she published this book back in the fall of 2019, but it's called um, Something Bad Happened. And well, it's, it's a way to teach children cognitive behavioral techniques to cope with bad news in the world. And what she talks about, the psychology of bad news, when our brain is in high alert and we perceive that we're in danger, the, the fascinating thing about our brain is that we actually look for signals to confirm to ourselves that we truly are in danger. So yeah. we have to purposefully and actively look for those safety signals. And so we need to first get our brains out of the high alert state in order to be able to then see, okay, let's look at, look to see what's safe around us and what we can do positively to impact our safety and our well-being. Uh, and that that's all with that gratitude, mindfulness, you know, improving our heart rate variability. And these are skills, if our kids can learn these now, when they're young, you know, through this traumatic time in our lives, they will have the skills to be resilient for the rest of their lives. So I, I do think this is important for us to remember. And I do worry about the unborn generation or the newly born generation of babies, not so much for their physical symptoms, because we're finding that you know newborns and, and infants, you know, they may have some complications that require hospitalizations, but they don't, they absolutely are not dying at higher rates. They don't seem to have higher rates of complications and then you know other other children um, but now in the states and i'm sure this will happen in other countries for women who are delivering right now uh, they um, many hospitals have limited the uh, a birth partner to one so if you had your let's say your husband or your partner and a doula you can't have them both some hospitals are, are restricting access to any anyone in the birthing room except for the mother and the, the delivery staff. And so then we have these women who are laboring on their own, you know, having their babies on their own, not, not experiencing the joy that they were anticipating. And if they have diagnosed COVID-19 or pre presumed COVID-19 based on symptoms, the CDC just came out last week with a recommendation that mothers and infants be separated from yes. birth for that time and babies, be those infants be put in, in their own isolation rooms, which to me, could have devastating consequences for, you know, for the, the the bonding of the mother baby. Of course, nursing is likely not going to happen successfully, and we know all the amazing benefits of for the baby's developing brain and gut and immune system. So I, I worry that we're not thinking long term enough about the health of our of our yeah. young ones. 
I have I have heard the the argument put now quite vigorously that we should be moving on to caesareans only, that this is a time oh. for sterility move yeah. away because the the um, virus has been found in the gut. And so this fear of the virus, my understanding is that pregnancies so far, and we haven't had a full pregnancy for someone with COVID-19, but the pregnancy so far, it doesn't seem like the babies are affected or infected. The breast milk appears to be clear of the virus. Yeah. There doesn't seem a reason to panic around birth, but it, it is, I think, medicine, my profession, or our profession, sorry, going back to basics, which is kill every bug, allow for no bacteria. And that idea of sterile humans, the sterile earth of, as the only safe place to be, has lost all contact with our need to be part of the environment, the baby being born into that environment, being protected by their birth, the breastfeeding and the mother in the first maybe six months of their lives. Absolutely. The, have you heard anything about, uh, like the outcomes of pregnancy are only just starting to appear, but mm -hmm. as I understand it, there was one baby that was found positive for COVID-19 after birth. Uh, positive for the SARS-CoV-2, sorry, yeah. after birth. Yeah. No, no illness or anything associated with the mum. But I see no evidence that there could be bad outcomes or is likely to be bad outcomes from going through a normal birthing process with normal contact in the birthing room. That seems to be being born into the world that we now find ourselves in, which is the safest way to birth. Yeah, you know, uh, there are, there are some larger numbers now of pregnant women. Um, initially, out of out of China, there were there was a, just an observational study of nine pregnant women who who had confirmed COVID nineteen, um, all of whose babies were discharged without any consequence, without right. SARS CoV two infection. Um, there, in looking at breast milk, um, the placenta, and cord blood, there's been no no SARS CoV two found. So vertical transmission does not seem to be really a right. concern. Um, the cases of, of newborns who have contracted or been found to have COVID or SARS CoV two infection, um, it does seem to be postnatally acquired. And so, in my you know, if mothers are testing positive for SARS CoV two, I think the the very best thing would be to breastfeed because they have mm. those passive antibodies that are passing to the babies. I mean, I see this all the time in mothers who have influenza and their babies come out, you know, literally, I mean, unscathed if they're nursing, you know, because right. they're getting all those amazing protective antibodies. So, and then we also know just long-term, the, the long-term consequences to sort of the dysregulation of the baby's gut microbiome if they are born by cesarean section and if they are formula fed from the beginning without the benefit of mom's milk, especially if they're separated from birth, um, with increased yeah. risk for atopic illness and allergies and ADHD and, you know, you name it, all of those chronic health conditions that are going to put them eventually at higher risk for something like yeah. COVID-19 in the first place. So we need to, you know, really from a functional medicine perspective, really Put, put everything into context and see how do we not just um, reduce the risk now, but reduce the risk long term so that we actually have a healthier population in the long run. Hmm. It's it's the time to be a pessimist right at the moment. The, the, the upside, we have this here mm -hmm. in Australia, that if you're the pessimist that says terrible things will happen, then if terrible things happen, then you were mystically foreknowledged mm -hmm. and you are you are blessed. If they don't happen, you just say, well, that's because people paid attention to me. 
and nothing bad <laughs> happened. And so the time to be an optimist is not now because things will go wrong. People do die. Mm -hmm. And this yeah. seems to be a, a pandemic which selectively chooses the older people with illnesses that are sooner or later going to take them anyway. That's yeah. the predominant loss of life. And though it's tragic, it is still the, you know, 75 plus. I'm approaching these ages, so I'm not being flippant about it. But given that that's the case, the, the people who are strongest and most capable of managing would appear to be the young mothers with their own immunology protecting them, passing on to the baby, and the baby growing up vigorously strong. And this becomes one more virus, one more coronavirus that babies are good at handling that is not a threat to society in the future. Whether or not there's a, um, a vaccine developed quickly or slowly, you still want a vigorously strong, immunologically intact group of youngsters to be able to defend themselves like they do against every cold virus every year of their lives. Yep, absolutely. So is there, is there a place? There's, there's a lot of discussion going on about what to take. I mean, Donald <laughs> has been helping not at all by getting up there and promoting Plaquenil. Which I just yeah. read today, there's a there's an expose suggesting that he's got shares in Sonovi, <laughs> which, which yeah. won't surprise me at all. I wouldn't be surprised either. So. <laughs> but, but is there, I mean, we're kind of standing around, people are in the dark saying, I'll try this, try that. I know that your basic practice is built on food and loving care, gratitude. Are there particular foods or particular um, supplements, is there anything that people can do, even if it's only to settle their own sense of feeling in control, of not being just vulnerable out there and mm. ready to be hurt by something? What's, what's safe, likely to do no harm and likely to provide some benefit? Yes. So, you know, and, and I, I think that um, really the idea of, of taking back some control, taking back some power is yeah. really really important because in all of this, you know, we have less than four months of data around the SARS-CoV-2 virus, right? It was first recognized less than four months ago, or I guess announced to the world on December 31. And so we really don't have a lot of data. And, you know, what we do um, know we can, or what we can theorize is the data that we have from, from SARS-CoV-1, the SARS epidemic that hit in, you know, the early 2000s. Uh, and so, you know, and we do have some data there about some nutrients that may be really important. We also know that for patients with SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19, uh, you know, there's talk of the, the, quote, cytokine storm and people's immune systems going yes. haywire. These, you know, inflammatory cytokines, IL-6, ILB-1, TNF-alpha, you know, that are going crazy. And so we have to remember, it's not so much that inflammation is a bad thing. It's just that inflammation unchecked. When we don't have the proper antioxidant reserves to really manage our, you know, our own inflammatory response, that's when things can go a little, a little haywire and you know, really lead to poor outcomes. And so the nutrients that, you know, when I've been looking at the research and really trying to find what, where is the evidence? And as you said, you know, what, where, where is there some evidence? Because we don't, have a ton of evidence, but we have some, and what's also likely to be safe. And so I do believe that the most important nutrients right now um, to really help uh, help prevent us from serious COVID-19 infection is going to be zinc, uh, quercetin, vitamin C, and glutathione. I mean, if I, if I had to choose four supplements, I would choose those. Um, but I would try to find them in foods because those are really, really easy to find in foods that are very healthy yeah. for you. Why zinc? Um, zinc was actually found to inhibit 
the SARS-CoV-1 uh, virus replication. So theoretically, there's about an 80% concordance, the SARS-CoV-2. The reason why it's called SARS-CoV-2, because it initially was called the 2019 NCoV, uh, but now realizing that there's about an 80% or more similarity between SARS-CoV-1 and this virus, SARS-CoV-2, we can theorize that some of the, some of the uh, um, nutrients that were found to be helpful against SARS-CoV-1 could be helpful against this current circulating coronavirus. So zinc may, may inhibit replication of SARS-CoV-2. And why not get zinc from food? I mean, pumpkin seeds are one of my favorite sources yeah. of zinc. Um, you know, you can grind pumpkin seeds, put them in your oatmeal, put them in your salads, put them in your soups. I mean, you can put them anywhere. And of course, zinc intake is most closely correlated with animal protein intake. Um, but cashews and sesame seeds, I mean, there's amazing ways to get zinc. Um, quercetin, I love quercetin. I mean, we're thinking now here in the States, we're in springtime allergy season. A lot of people use quercetin for their allergies. But what's very interesting is that quercetin is what's called a zinc ionophore. So it helps shuttle zinc into your cells. So yeah, and you want the zinc in your cells. If SARS-CoV-2 has been able to attach to those ACE2 receptors, you want zinc inside to inhibit that replication. And so if quercetin helps enhance that, then great. Um, you know, the, the theory behind why plaquenil hydroxychloroquine may be beneficial is because hydroxychloroquine and chlorophyll actually do have zinc ionophore activity. So it's, it's really interesting. Um, but quercetin, you know, raw onion, um, red apples with the skin on, red grapes, you know, your berries, green tea. So actually eating yes. from green tea was found to have zinc ionophore activity too. So, I mean, drink up your green tea, right? That, what a great way. Green tea also has theanine, which is going to help you feel calm and relaxed, which we all need during this time. Um, you know, vitamin C in particular, there's been some interesting studies and there are some ongoing studies looking at high dose vitamin C in the ICU. Uh, vitamin C has been found to be protective against sepsis. There's one study looking at high dose vitamin C. Um, I mean, it wasn't even what I would consider incredibly high dose, but I think it was 24 grams in a 24-hour yeah. period uh, found to be protective against sepsis. And, you know, that's what people with COVID-19 are dying from. And, and as well, C septic C shock. So septic vitamin shock. C being used with dexamethasone has doubled the survival rate of septic shock in hospitals and has now become, you know, very, very much mainstream at those doses of, you know, 10 to 20 grams. Yep therapeutically delivered it's more like a drug it's not like having your oranges in the morning that's, that's for sure right. but that's it right. is it's fascinating because there are a group of studies already being done in china with the use of that same intravenous vitamin c we're yet to see the results but it will be fascinating to see what effect if any it's had on the virus yeah i mean and what a simple you know intervention right that would be yeah. so cost effective um you know glutathione i mean everyone listening yeah podcast knows the importance of glutathione. Uh, but one thing that struck me, you know, when you look at some of the studies around glutathione and, um, depletion with acetaminophen, right, paracetamol, and viral infections, that paracetamol yep. does seem to prolong the duration of certain viral infections and even the severity and duration of shedding. And so, you know, when this whole concern around NSAID medications and worsening of COVID-19 came out and the recommendation was to use paracetamol. I I mean, I actually took a step back and I thought, oh my gosh, if now people are going to be, you know, kind of chugging down the Tylenol, that would be one of the worst things they could do because of the depletion of glutathione. And so um, I do have concerns around, around that. And, you know, with NSAIDs, I don't know, I'm not convinced that NSAIDs are necessarily uh, a problem. Um, we just don't have enough 
uh, data around that. But the theory behind that was that NSAID, uh, can, NSAID medications can increase the level of ACE2 in your serum. Yeah. Now, what's fascinating about that, though, is, is that, you know, ACE2 as a medication, so uh, by increasing serum ACE2, may actually be protective against sepsis. Yes. And theoretically, you know, if, if the serum ACE2 is a blocking attachment of the SARS-CoV-2 virus to ACE2 receptors, it potentially could actually benefit SARS-CoV-2 infections. So I don't know. I mean, that was the same same concern raised with vitamin D and vitamin A um, and maybe not taking vitamin D and vitamin A right now. But I, I have not been recommending stopping your vitamin D or vitamin A because of how important they are for our immune system functioning uh, yeah. and the fact that so many people are, are deficient or insufficient in vitamin D worldwide. It does, it does seem as though this, the COVID-2 infection is a two-stage infection. Mm -hmm. It is the fascinating thing that has been recommended is you don't want immune suppressants in the early stages of it when you want to build a vigorous immune response. A lot of people get to the point where they have effectively beaten the virus and the viral teeters are dropping and the PCR is going mm -hmm. negative and then the cytokine storm hits. And so as you would think as the virus is dropping away, the immune system would ease up a little bit, but instead for a smallish group of people, those especially with heart disease, diabetes, those with lung disease, it goes into a second kick and it seems no one can figure out what's going on. The virus is dropping away. Why would the body not just back off? Why does it go into this cytokine storm and then need, you know, aggressive ventilation and immunosuppressants and all the rest of it? And it only happens in, it seems to only happen in older people who've built up a kind of health debt over enough years. But yeah. there is, there's a little trapdoor that no one knows about until it starts to happen. And when it goes off, it goes off very vigorously and then you don't use immune stimulants, you use mm -hmm. immune suppressants. Now that's the medical way of, you know, stimulate it and suppress it. Yeah. Foods seem to have all those capacities within mm -hmm. them and so you get all of it in a package if you're not going for a goal, you know, I know better than the virus, I'll, I'll attack it with vitamin C or I'll attack it with a Plaquenil. It seems much safer to run back onto the early stage of the infection to set the stage for a more settled recovery of the immune response, not fall into that cytokine storm. And I, I think that's where we're too smart for ourselves. We think, oh, we've got to increase the immune response, or we've got to suppress the immune response like there's one answer. And viruses are smart. They, you know, they made us effectively. <laughs> and we, yeah. gave, we gave them a way of getting out. And they know how, you know, they know how we react. They don't care if we live or die at the end. Well, and I think that, you know, understanding, uh, you know, our immune response and our immune system, it, it's, um, it's really, I, I think, created a, a reductionistic view of which cytokines are pro-inflammatory, yeah. which are anti-inflammatory, which are regulatory, because, you know, we know IL-6, which is implicated in the cytokine serum, has both pro- and anti-inflammatory properties. So yeah. we can't just simply say, let's target IL-6. And I mean, there, there are some studies looking at IL-6 um, monoclonal antibodies, but it's just, we're just not that simple. I mean, to think that we can really understand, you know, exactly how each of these cytokines work and which ones need to be, you know, down-regulated or up-regulated is, is really too simplistic. Um, but I think bottom line, uh, you know, with the cytokine storm, most people have to remember 
cytokine storm is rare. It's, it, it happens with COVID-19, but it is still a rare phenomenon. And I think people are too afraid to take their vitamin D or maybe take their elderberry because, oh my gosh, could it trigger a cytokine storm? I really think that you know when we are, as you said, sticking to food as medicine, and then also taking a reasonable amount of supplements, not overdoing things, there, yeah. we, we can't trigger ourselves into cytokine storm. Um, there are other things that are happening. Right. I, it's always tempting to say, what's the worst case scenario? What I want to finish on is, what's the best case scenario of this? There will be suffering, there will be deaths, there will be severe disease, there'll be trauma to families. The question of how we emerge from this, this is a traumatic event economically, socially, psychologically. There's so many areas that are all happening for the first time in my memory. I mean, I've been around 64 years. I don't remember anything quite like this. There's yeah. so much happening. Do you have a sense yet of how we emerge from it? Do we emerge wiser? Do we emerge scared? Do we just go after every bat in China and murder them all in their caves? What, what do you think the outcome will be? How is there a, a positive from the experience? You know, I think that, that we all have a choice to make about how, what kind of an outcome we want for ourselves and for our communities and for the world. And this has to be an active decision. We have to actively choose to make this an opportunity in the face of one of the greatest adversities that we will ever face. And some of us will not know tragedy like we will know in the coming months. Um, but when we look to see, you know, I was reading this one article about how some of the, the greatest corporations in the world were founded during recessions. Disney was founded during the recession. Um, you know, CNN and, and even FedEx, I was reading, you know, was founded during one of our economic recessions. And it is in times of, of adversity and tragedy that we have the choice to either let that consume us or to really be reborn and really be creative in how we want our world to look like and how we want our life to be, you know, post COVID-19. And, you know, this is where we really need to think creatively, think with our kids, think with our children. This is the time to really reflect on what our true priorities are. And for our kids, this is that golden opportunity where for the first time in their young lives, they will not have instant gratification. Hmm. Because from the moment that they were born, you know, this generation of children has known nothing but instant gratification. And so, you know, it is time for us now to sit back and reflect, how are we going to live our lives? How do we want to show up for the world? What lasting memory do I want to leave upon this earth? Yeah. And how do I want to leave this with a better place? And I do think we have that opportunity if we take it. It is, it is an opportunity to pause, isn't it? Life in, um, I think in America as well as Australia, most of the, most of the Western countries rolls on with a kind of, inability to pause, stop. There is nothing that gives us time to cons to reflect and consider. And it seems that although the panic was the first response, there is now people who are ha taking the time to reconsider it and build something new and, and pause and not just simply be on the, the roundabout of, we've got to go to work, we've got to get to work, we've got to pay the bills, we've got to do. All of that, we realize for the first time, hey, that's an option that we chose. The virus yes. is an option that we may not have chose, but it forces us to stop, say, actually, is paying the rent that important compared to being alive next year or next month or next week? 
and it does it does change priorities. I'm seeing this in my patients that the first week or two of this was all panic of will I die, and the next time has been you know what, now everyone I see chronic fatigue syndrome patients. Now everyone knows what I feel like, they say. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Locked yeah. away yeah. in your home, you can't go shopping, you can't go out jogging. All of those things, other people are getting a sense of it and being kinder to people who suffer it all the time. Yeah. I think there's an opportunity with those ideas of the gratitude and um, pause and reflect for us to emerge better than when we went into it, for us to emerge with a better balance in life, with a sense of what we can and cannot do, what's obligatory and what's optional. And that's empowering some of my patients. So the upside for them is already happening that if everybody thinks you're just a loser because you're not on the rat race, then mm. you are a loser. When everyone has to stop, they start to think, oh, Maybe that's not what life was all about. Maybe, and I know Donald is worried that we we might lose the plot and not be economically viable anymore. But the idea of valuing health and wellness yeah. and joy and happiness and the new values could just be one of the great upsides of uh, this pandemic. Yes, I, and you know, in a way, it it has to be. And I I see all of these, you know, memes uh, on Instagram and Facebook and. How, how people are working to really better themselves. And um, my wish is that all of this sticks because in times of crisis, we can promise things to ourselves, but it's really when things get better, that's gonna be the true test of, you know, can we really continue to make this a better world than, than what it was pre-COVID-19? Dr. Elisa Song, pediatrician and my guru in the areas of health, especially when it comes to anyone under 16 years of age, it's been delightful <laughs> to talk with you. Thanks for your You're wisdom. Welcome. Oh, thank you, Dr. Donahoe. So excited to be back with FX Medicine and with everyone down in Australia. And my heart goes to you. I know that you know we're we're just a, a little bit ahead of you, but um, I I'm sending all my love and gratitude to everyone down under. And we will send it your way as well. It brings one world together. This uh, this is the, not the time that every country has its own little trauma. This is a time that we either come together or we run the risk of losing the plot. And I would, I would encourage everyone to follow the outline that you've given us today, especially when it comes to looking after family at home over the next month. So thank you very much, Elisa. It's been delightful. You're welcome. You can find this FX Medicine video podcast on our Facebook page. If you'd like to know more about future interactive video podcasts, please ensure you subscribe at fxmedicine.com.au.